at its greatest, that kind of deconstruction can sometimes allow you to see things that are embedded in a system or an infrastructure that could potentially become tyrannical. Yes. That's its greatest kind of uh, uh, force here. But you, but again, you see on the opposite end too, that if you deconstruct everything, you have no stability and then you lose all sorts of value. And uh, welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Joe Meyer, uh, host of Neutral Grounds podcast and professor in the writing and critical thinking department at the University of Albany. Uh, Joe, welcome on the show. Glad to have you. Thank you, PJ. It's a pleasure. And uh, today we're going to be covering what is neo-modernism and why should we care? So if you want yeah. to go ahead and give us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in this topic, and give us a little background so that our audience can understand uh, how all of us, you know, why should we listen to you about it? I mean, obviously, if you're a professor in this area, that's generally pretty good credentials, but <laughs> uh, certainly we could start there. So uh, th thank you for uh, coming on the show, and I appreciate having you, Joe. Absolutely. Yeah, so actually, really where it begins for me is... I had a moment in, in a theater, a movie theater kind of, mm. watching, um, I forgot which, which Marvel cinematic movie it was. It might have even just been uh, Captain America, which was also the first mm. date with my wife, which was awesome as well. But I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm watching Captain America, and I'm going, wow, I'm really, I'm really digging the movie. I'm enjoying it a lot. And there's nothing mm. particularly complex about it. It's very straightforward, yeah. good versus evil. He's about as wholesome yeah. as you can get. And that just sat awkwardly with me. And I thought, wait, how are they doing this? And I just have this moment where I look around the theater and I'm seeing people on the edge of their seats and there's nothing particularly, again, complex happening, but people are so engaged. Yeah. And that got me thinking, we're selling a non-complex story here of good versus evil. And then I thought back to Iron Man and yeah. I thought, you know what? That's kind of the same thing. If you really break it down, he seems complex, but he's really not. He wants to make yeah. his name right again. He's got his, the Stark yep. name is on the missiles, all that stuff. And he just wants to make that name good again. Yes. And I went back to thinking about, okay, so postmodernism, there's no way you can understand neo-modernism without understanding postmodernism. And postmodernism tends to make people want to tear their hair out because it's, it, by its very nature, it doesn't want to be defined. And right. that's one of the main reasons why people are like, I hate this. I hate it so much. <laughs> Have and, you ever seen that Simpsons clip? Which one? The one where it's like, um, oh, this... Uh this art, is, this art piece is Pomo. He's like, Pomo? It's like, postmodern. He's like, well, what? what? Postmodern, what does that mean? It's like, a weird for the sake of being weird. Like, oh, oh okay, we get it. And that's like... You know, and I, in I, some like, ways... I think, go ahead. There's some truth in that. There is. There's a, there is a little bit of truth in that, especially toward the tail end of postmodernism. Absolutely. Yes. Bad art. Bad art yeah. is that kind of postmodernism. No, it's true. I Look, I'm going to be honest. I think people will agree. Sometimes you walk into a modern art museum 
You look mm-hmm. at something and you go, I'm sorry, that's not good. I it's saw not. a piece of burlap sack nailed to a wall <laughs> in the Chicago. I just, literally, it's all it was. It wasn't even a full burlap sack. I felt cheated. Um, it was just a, it's just a shred of it just nailed to the wall. And it's like it has its own plaque. It's next to all this other stuff. And it's interesting because I've seen postmodern art that I really enjoy. Yes. Right. Like, wait, no, it's like uh, in the same area, there was... Um, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was something about like the destruction of innocence. It was, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they had taken discarded children's toys, made a human figure sewn out of it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. And uh, and with its entrails ripped out. And they were like toys acting like intestines being ripped out of this figure. And there it you was... Go. I, the the picture of ruined innocence was I mean not that I necessarily liked the experience of seeing it but it was very it was very impactful yeah. like there was a lot of thought put into it it made sense absolutely but I'm just like I, the the idea of like well I'm an insider in the art culture so I know that if I put up a blank canvas or a a burlap sack on a wall it's going to work I mean. Anyways, sorry, continue. Like, no, no, uh, no, you're right this on. This is very fascinating and to me. And you're giving, you're giving a great example there too, right? Because great art, we, and I'll, I'll have fun conversations with my students about this, right? Like I used yeah. to do this thing where I would put the word the on the board and I would say, okay, everyone, this is my poem. Is it good? Literally just the word the. Yeah. And some, about a quarter of the class would look at me like, what are you trying to pull? And the other yeah, ones, yeah, yeah. I, I'd have another quarter who would be like, if that's what you want it to be, then yes, it's uh, art. It's good art. And I would go, no, no, it's not. <laughs> and and then they would push back. And, and you love this about teaching. They push back. Yes. And, and they say, yeah. well, who are you to say what's good art? A valid question. Yeah. And what well, I, I mean, say besides is, the fact that you made the poem, <laughs> yeah, it's sorry, my poem. The and I would of course ham it up for like fun. The you know yes, and, yeah, yeah. and and what I try to tell them was: look, good art has to speak to the human condition in some capacity. Period. Yeah, it has to. And so, like the example that you gave, mm. what made it postmodern is it took something that was precious, that's supposed to be precious, like children's toys. Mm. And subverted that dominant narrative that a toy is fun yeah. and innocent and ruined it. And that's postmodernism. Postmodernism is skepticism. <laughs> if you if you wanted to yeah. find postmodernism in one word, skepticism. It's skeptical of grand narratives, any sort of story that can encompass uh, the way of being, the truth, capital T, if you'll allow me. You know, I kind of hate doing that, but that capital T truth thing. I mean, it's kind of how they talk about it. So, yeah. That's yeah. Fair. I mean, tr- truth on a large scale. It's just skeptical of all of it. And yes, what I try to do even on, on the podcast in the classroom is to say, OK, the tail end of postmodernism is problematic. It had to die. It did. But don't hate all of postmodernism, because in the earlier parts of postmodernism after World War II, it was very important to create the space for civil rights. You, yeah. you can only get that major civil rights push that we have in America because you did disrupt the dominant narrative that was going on and said, but what if we allow these people to have a space as well? Hey, that's postmodernism. And yeah. so when people say postmodernism is all bad, I, I got to push back a little bit. 
but it did need to die <laughs> because yeah, it was getting out of well, hand. It it's yeah, for sure. I um, uh, it's been interesting to see um people using uh, Derrida in ways that I don't think he would appreciate, and I think it's interesting <laughs> to see people push back against Derrida. And one of the things that people, and I think this is just a full misunderstanding of who Derrida is, is they don't know his history. Like, I mean, he's an Algerian Jew writing in the 60s, trying to come to grips. I think it's like late 50s he starts writing, and he's trying to come to grips with what happened under the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Like, that makes deconstruction a whole lot different than... A, either the, like, whatever the conservative view of things would be, it's like, oh, you can't, you know, you're just deconstructing all society. And it's like, I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he had a right to deconstruct, like, what he was dealing with as an Algerian Jew, if you know that that history. And then, uh, and then of course, the you have, like, a, a more liberal view of things where it's just like, we're going to deconstruct all the things, everything. Everything is bad if it has any kind of view. And it's just like, I... Yeah. Anyways, it's very interesting <laughs> yeah. to see how how that has been. Uh, uh, who's I just? Oh, Ricor. Ricor. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, that's who I did a lot of my work in. Gottman Ricor, philosophical hermeneutics, and he said it's very important to go through the what he calls the who he calls the masters of suspicion, mm -hmm. and that's how we get beyond um, masking ourselves. It's important to be authentic and genuine. And you, people do tell themselves a lot of lies. So for him, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. Um, not not, a, hundred, not a, a whole lot, but yes, a little bit from like grad school. Yeah. So his, uh, his the four masters of suspicion um, are Sigmund Freud, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, um, Derrida, and Foucault. Yeah, and uh, yeah, which a very like kind of a classic list. And yeah, it's just like, yeah. there's a lot to, yeah, uh, I think it was Foucault. I know, I remember, because he wrote a lot about Freud, but it's just like, mm -hmm. I mean, that's where it starts, right? You have to have this subconscious, which is really something that we don't realize how it's so embedded in our culture. But okay, I'm, I'm getting excited. I want to hear more about neo-modernism. That's, that's great. <laughs> no, no, no it's great. Topic. It's great stuff because you're, we're, we're still on pace. We're setting the stage for how we get here yeah. because the... Because you do need to keep it kind of in the middle here. Again, don't hate it, but at the same time, understand that it has a usefulness. And at its greatest, that kind of deconstruction can sometimes allow you to see things that are embedded in a system or an infrastructure that could potentially become tyrannical. Yes. That's its greatest kind of force here. But you, But again, you see on the opposite end, too, that if you deconstruct everything, you have no stability and then you lose all sorts of values. And that's where yeah. it guides into the latter half of, I would say, going into the late 90s, early 2000s, we start to lose that stability and we begin to mock everything. You start to see things being mocked all over the place, right? Nothing is safe. Yep. Okay. Yep. There's a certain freedom in that, right? But at the same time... It doesn't allow the human being to have any kind of sacred space from which they can just build their own narrative and, and hold yeah. that narrative as something important, something sacred to themselves without the feeling like everything that I do is unstable. Everything that I see, everything that I try to experience is up for mockery. And that's ultimately what kills postmodernism, in my opinion. Yeah. So in comes the superhero narrative to quite literally save the day.
In the late 90s, you get the, the rise of the superhero cartoons. Mid-90s, mid Batman, X-Men. You get the X-Men movies early on. And then you cruise right into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And yeah. the smartest thing that Marvel did was it read the room perfectly. Whether they yeah. knew it or not, they somehow figured out, you know what? We're done with making complex heroes as the foreground or the, the scaffold for our universe. We're going to go yeah. pure, uh, pure narrative. We want people to feel like you can believe in this story. You can believe in the hero. You can believe in right and wrong. And so they put yeah. really Iron Man and Captain America as their two sides and they build the sandbox with some complexity in the middle for other characters to be a little more complex. Yeah. But at the end of, of phase three, at the end with infinity war and Endgame, who were the two characters that people were crying for the most captain America and Tony Stark, Iron Man. And it's oh, because yeah. we felt like they were taking good and evil and they were taking sacredness and narrative seriously there's no complexity and skepticism. He has, I mean, uh, Steve Rogers at the end, it's just a dance. Yeah. That's it. We're given yeah, a he dance. Gets everything he, yes, he yeah. gets the girl. Um, even if they had to do time travel to do it. And <laughs> yeah, I mean like, yeah, a hundred percent. It's a very uh, simple story at its core. I mean, people can get blinded by the time travel stuff, but that's really, I mean, it's not handled very critically. You know I mean? It's like, it, it's a very simple story. Absolutely. And we ate it up. Thanos because, is a very, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please come in with Thanos. Yeah. No, inter you can totally yeah, interrupt. Thanos is Let's a very boring, very, not not boring, but he's a very, uh, I mean, simple bad guy. I mean, even you like, you're like, he's not, I mean, and that's one of the biggest criticisms of Marvel, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of those YouTube sketches about it. Like Marvel villains, like you have Iron Man and then you have Warmonger, who's a bad <laughs> Iron Man. You know, like, it's like, it's like you have Ant-Man and then you have Wasp Man, who's a bad yeah. Ant-Man. And it's just like, uh, Thanos is basically, I, who looks at their, their uh, saying, oh, there's not enough food and says, you know what I'm going to do? Instead of like spending my life trying to make more food, because he gets so much he could make more food. It's like, I'm just yes. going to eliminate half the universe. It's like, you just made somebody who's not even really plausible, but he's easy to hate. I mean, yes. who is the one person? This is why, I mean, and this is... It's parodied to the point where it becomes unironic again. Who's the bad guy that always shows up? Because we haven't been able to create a good bad guy for a long time. Who's, who's the one bad guy that always shows up? Nazis. You can always shoot a Nazi and feel good about it. And it's just like, yeah. and that's, that's pre-postmodern. That's what it's about. That is the idea of we, we want to eliminate all complexity, bring in, bring in something that we can rally around, a reassured narrative. Because, again, yes. postmodernism, postmodernism at its core destabilizes narratives. And yes. in doing so... That's the point. The, exactly. The human being is yeah. left in, in, in sort of a space of wandering a little bit. Yeah. And they were just brilliant about saying, let's all rally around something, a symbol that we can hate. And it's funny you brought up Thanos because... The Infinity War, Thanos, just those two movies even, Infinity War and Endgame, he's yeah. 
slightly more complex in Infinity War simply because he has an ethos of of an idea. We disagree with it completely, but the idea yes. of I am going to you're going to love me because I am going to assert order on chaos. And that is what the tyrannical dictator always does. They sell the idea. That's a good point. I am going to assert order and chaos. You see what, you know, Stalin, what Hitler are able to do, you know, even Mussolini to a degree, they promise order. And it, it registers as complexity in Infinity War when in reality it's the simplest tale of the, the benevolent dictator in hiding. Well, and, and then, I mean, I don't want to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Just to sum it up. And then you get to Endgame where he even gives up all that. And there's nothing behind. He just wants to destroy the world. I mean, he even gets simpler in Endgame yeah. so that it allows the opposite story, the good stories to be even simpler. It's yes. just good versus evil. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think of any other story where the good guy um, could talk about, oh, I hit the head this time. You know, talking about like when Thor is like so happy that he cut off his head and like there's a little bit of a twinge, but everyone's like, ah, it's Thanos. It's fine. And it's like he just yeah. walked in on this retired guy and like cut off his head. And it, yeah. 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 And it's but because it's all part, he... part of doing that. Absolutely. Right. And, and Thor, I, I will say I did have, those were my two hiccup characters in there was I, I was not a huge fan of, of like fat Thor. I was a fan <laughs> of his, no, no, here's why. Because what they did is they made it postmodern instead of taking it somewhat seriously. The fact that, I mean, let's be honest, PJ, if you and me were Thor in that moment and we did what he did and didn't go for the head and instead yeah. wanted that moment to be able to talk to him because that's ego. Yeah, and that yeah, makes yeah. sense, right? It does. It makes sense. He has every right to feel as though he has some blame there. And could you imagine yeah. carrying the loss of half the world because of your ego? Half the universe, you would, right? <laughs> I mean, you would literally, you would go into a state of depression that no one has seen. And so right. I like the idea, but where they make it postmodern is what do they do? They mock it. Yeah. And the, and the way, and the, and you know, they mock it because they don't treat his return with any respect. Yes. Which yeah. also really bothered me. I was like, I would have been fine even with them mocking it if he had had to work to get back into shape. Yes. But when he just like, I was like, oh, he got hit by a lightning bolt. I was like, oh, none of it mattered anyways. Yeah really did lose like it lost they lost some stakes there i mean they made up for it just because they've built it over what 40 i don't even know how many movies there are i've only seen half of yeah, them yeah there's, there's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of them but but yeah, that, there's so this, many the scene with his mother it was beautiful and it could have been mm -hmm. even better if if they would have just allowed him in that moment to to shake off and lose his anxiety Really in that moment. And I know life doesn't happen that way. I know it. But that's, again, that's not its purpose. Its purpose isn't to say, you know, that this is our reality. Its only purpose is to say, this is who we need to try to become. Is hmm. honorable, 
believing in right and wrong, striving to do the best that you can. And nowhere is that laid out better than in the, the movie Civil War, where you have Iron Man versus Captain America. And that, here's where I was nerding out like crazy. I couldn't tell if it was the seven-year-old me or the, the, the teacher in college. I couldn't tell. But I'm sitting there watching this and I'm going, oh my God, this is neo-modern belief in narrative in Captain America versus postmodern instability in Iron Man, right? Because Iron Man mm. gets shaken and suddenly he feels like, I want to share responsibility with others. I, I want to create mm. more sites of infrastructure where we can say, I, I no longer trust my ability to discern what is right. And when I watched that movie, I thought in the middle, oh, wow, I wonder where you're going to go with this. Are you going to take the easy yeah. way out and say that they're both right? And they didn't. Captain America wins out in the end. And that mm. was Marvel's way of saying, we know what's going on, kind of. We want you to continue yeah. to believe in the superhero, that you can yes. be good as well in doing so. You yeah. can discern right from wrong. That's a pretty powerful yeah. statement, PJ, to say to people oh, you incredible. can do that. Yeah. And it's where, I mean, ultimately it would be the death of philosophy if we just continued on postmodernism. Like at the end of the day, if you don't believe you have an obligation to be a better person, then why practice philosophy? Why practice yeah. critical thinking at all? Why not just sit and stare at an endless array of dank memes on YouTube? It doesn't matter <laughs> how you spend your time. You know what I mean? Like, Yes, you're right. You're <laughs> yeah, right. And it's just like you, you see this mindless entertainment, which in itself, it tends to be very postmodern, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if that if that's making sense at all. It's just like I, I find myself slipping into that where it's just... Uh, when I'm tired and I like, I want to break, I just watch stuff that I'm just like, it, it doesn't do anything. Yes. Right. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make me think I just laugh and then I forget about it. And yeah. that's kind of, I mean, even when you look at, yeah, anyways, sorry. That, I no, think no, that, you're a hundred percent right. That makes total sense. Nothing passes the time better than postmodern, uh, media in some ways, because, you, you go into it kind of expecting that instability and you leave with nothing that's stable. And the, e the best example I can give is, is Family Guy, is, oh is the goodness, perfect yeah. postmodern kind of, uh, uh, of show because they never really connect episodes in any meaningful way. So no. you, you go in and then at the end, they even mock at the very end, they have their little family moment where they say kind of like what we've learned and they always mock it by saying like, we've learned nothing. That's yeah. postmodern because there's nothing to believe in. Yeah. Yeah. I and, mean, you can compare yeah. that to other sitcoms where at the end, like there's always like, I mean, compare that. And this is just a brutal like comparison, like leave it to Beaver. Like, yes. I mean? like, yes. like you get to the end it's like the family unit matters mm -hmm. it's like holy crap why don't you just hit me over the head with a crowbar and like yeah, yeah it's like as compared and the, but it's something to believe in and i mean if there's one thing that family guy like it, family guy doesn't believe in anything like it's very clear they will mock anything you know you yep. mentioned that earlier um it's almost interesting i'm curious what do you think about south park because i feel like south park will mock just about anything 
but they actually do seem to care about some things. They'll say, no, that seems wrong. Like yeah. they'll actually like have take moral stances on stuff, which is kind of astonishing. I mean, Jeff Bezos as a, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like as the head of an evil empire, but yes. Um, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. South Park. I mean, uh, after the original Jonathan Swift, you know, sat satirist. South Park is yeah. is right after that, the next best one, because people, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll talk about this in class. People oftentimes confuse like satire and parody and people will say like Seth MacFarlane with a family guy's a, a satirist. And no, he's not actually at all. Like he's really not. And it doesn't take away his, uh, he's incredibly talented. Yes. McFarlane, he is, but he is not good at satire when he does try. Yes. And that's because satire requires you have to say something substantial about society and you have yes. to say it in a ridiculous way that also is logical. And that's yeah. a very tough thing to do. And South Park yes. figured it out early on. We, we can say things in an incredible way, ridiculous way. But people will understand what we're talking about. And sometimes the one that I'll, I'll talk about in class is the Britney Spears one from way back when, where people at the time when she, she was not doing well in terms of her mental health and she did some concert and the next day people were writing articles about her and they were calling her fat. And it was just like, what are you doing? Where have yeah. we, where did we come to with this? This is ridiculous. You see, you can clearly see her struggling, like literally yeah. she's struggling and people are yeah. writing articles about this. And then South Park came out with an episode about it and mm -hmm. they, they made it, it was quite violent. And their whole point was we create these moments for these young women when we sacrifice yeah. them to entertainment. Yeah. And, and it was an incredibly powerful message at the time. And not postmodern. See, they always kind of stayed a bit. Well, no, I should say it this way. They figured out how to make postmodernism meaningful. And yeah. that is maybe yeah. the biggest wizardry that they could ever do. Because you would you would put that kind of ridiculousness, you know, towelly, for example, a towel that talks. That's a kind of postmodern ridiculousness that destabilizes any kind of dominant narrative that we have about towels, right? Towels don't talk. Okay. But then they added meaning to it. And, and really they will go down as probably, uh, I mean, the greatest satirists that we'll see, uh, it's certainly in the TV medium at the time, but yeah. they, they did, they found a way to kind of stay both inside and outside of postmodernism. Really, it was quite, quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and, um, so we've talked a lot about how it destabilizes those main narratives. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned there are four main tenets of neo-modernism and they kind of correspond in some ways with postmodernism. Do you mind? I think we're at a good spot now where you yeah. could kind of outline that. Let's start getting technical. So I, I see three, three primary traits so far in kind of early to mid neo-modernism. The first is looking for narrative reassurance because we destabilized so much narrative, both personally and collectively, 
I think people are really desperately looking for some kind of way to reassure narrative stability and gain stability. And I think this also has a lot to do with, with the, I guess, let me, let me say it this way. I find a lot of the contentiousness that we see in society today, people kind of say that it's groupthink. And I would only slightly differ with that in that I actually think it's groups of individuals who are just kind of huddled together because they want to protect and they want to create their personal narratives. But as a species, of course, we do better when we're with others. We feel more protection. And so I came to that kind of idea when I kept hearing people say, Uh, When someone would push back against their group, let's say, they would say, well, I don't believe that. And, you know, people kind of laugh that off and say, well, you know, that's ridiculous and you're being hypocritical. But I didn't see it that way. I kind of thought, I think they mean it. And if they do mean it, then what does that say? It says that Hmm. there are a group of individuals who are just kind of huddled together to protect something and they get enough connection with each other that they feel like they can share that kind of um, protection with each other, if you will. And, and that got me thinking about, well, I'll, I'll connect that with the third one in a second. I'll hmm. get to that. The second one that I see a lot of is this, this urge or need to transcend the body. And so you might have noticed <clears throat> a big uptick in people talking about psychedelics, people talking about meditation, even prayer. And I started looking around and I started researching, why would this show up now? Because this is nothing new to us as a species. We've had these access to these things for thousands of years. Why would we want to transcend the body now in some way? And I think it's because we need to feel again, like that there is something greater than us. Mm. When you... When you, uh, that tail end of postmodernism, when there is nothing that's sacred, you lose a lot of the power of what it means to be a human being. And you start to think, if this is really all I am, is this mortal form? I'm sorry, that's not enough. It's not enough. I mean, you can, for me, I don't know about you, I'll say, I'm perfectly willing to accept that I wake up in the morning because of science. But I get up because of the humanities and because of something that is greater than me. Or I would just stay in bed. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, if we're all just going to get wiped out by a passing galaxy anyways, you know, like intersecting, you know, just like, eh, you know. Um, I, I myself uh, uh, am a devout Christian. I've learned to say that instead of conservative Christian because conservative Christian has a lot of political overtones that I'm there not you go. really, you know, like, it's like, what did I just say? And you I'm see like, yourself probably as an individual, right? You see yourself yeah. as an individual, but align with that side because you find more of a connection maybe there. Right. Yeah. Well, I find myself very much connected to other Christians, but sure. what I've found is that Christianity has been co-opted. Um, and I think this comes from the, the huddling effect. Right. I mean, when people look at like if you go through the Republican and Democratic platforms, these these ideals don't line up 
You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. mean, some of them can. And I mean, you could hold all those at the same time. Sure. But you don't have to. But people feel like they need to. And that's, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, it's I like, do. I, I mean, do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm Catholic and I, yeah, I find this connects also maybe even with the, the, uh, the second point of needing to transcend to a degree because it's, it, we do so much talking today Right. And we hear so much information all the time that it mm. does kind of make us feel small and nothing. And so having, for me at least, having a God that I, I am accountable to, yeah, people would say that that must feel oppressive, but it's not for me. No. no. It's like, okay, there's that a priori good that I have to reach for and I ain't going to reach it. I'm not going to reach it all the time. Yeah. Really not. <laughs> you know, I make no mistake. You know, I will openly admit that. And that's okay because he's on it, your side. Exactly. But it, yes. keeps, yeah. it keeps me constantly trying to transcend what I'm here yeah. on earth doing to transcend to something yeah. better. And, and that the last thing that I see is people really, and this connects with, I think the other two people, I think really need or are yearning to create some kind of sacred space for themselves mm -hmm. where again, it's outside that realm of mockery. And I know mm -hmm. people will say, you know, you, you can't close off spaces like that. Everything should be open for interpretation and mockery. That's not really what I'm arguing. What, what I'm arguing for here is that people want it. That's not the same thing as saying that they're going to get it. I'm yeah. saying that one of the reasons why we're constantly arguing with each other as well today is because we're constantly stepping into each other's sacred spaces and trying to, in some ways, tearing it down, even if we don't realize we are. And yeah. this isn't like you're defending something, I don't know, like your favorite color. If you're trying to create something that's sacred to you, whether it's family, your religion, um, your work or something, you're going to defend that with your soul. It's like an attack on your soul. And so people are lashing out because it's not just that you're saying, oh, how ridiculous. You like the color orange. It's like, who cares? Yeah, nobody's <laughs> arguing over orange. We're arguing over yeah. things that are very personal yeah. Now, there are a lot of negatives to these, though, too. I see mm. those three character traits as being incredibly important for us to move forward in neo-modernism. But you also see the negatives right away. If I build up my narrative and I reassure my narrative and I have that, the more I build it up, the more I can potentially leave you out of it. And so we end up being further apart from each other. And that's not good either. So you have to build up your narrative in a way that always allows for connection with the larger humanity. And that's religion sort of does all three of these things, by the way, religion tends to do automatically for us. Right. Right. If you're a Christian, you can't be just sitting in your corner and that's yep. it. You got to go out. You got to interact with the world and you have to well, do it's good. Interesting to no, no, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's interesting to see how the the certain forms of Christianity are dying out, and the more traditional forms are growing again because people why are looking that? for that reassurance. There because you go. For that reassurance. Yeah. No, there you 100%. go. No, this yeah. is all makes sense to me. Even um, it's interesting. I, I live in Florida, Central Florida, 
uh, not quite rural, but pretty close. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> like the most of the people I talk to are worried about the left and the left are going to take over the country and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, when you look at history, we really, I, I'm, I, you know, real concerns. Okay. I can understand, you know, like just because like people didn't think Rome was going to fall until it fell. Right. Like yeah. everyone thought it was just, and one of the things, uh, you know, even as we were talking about it, we were so willing to destabilize things because we took our stability for granted. Yes. We don't realize what a blessing stability can be. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm like, you do realize that human nature is very reactive and, uh, just because there's this narrative over here that doesn't seem to include you doesn't mean that we just automatically run over to this narrative yes. because that's where we're seeing. I mean, I'm talking to, uh, I'm talking to this 20 year old guy and he is not into it, but he loves, uh, he loves memes. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's seeing stuff. I'm like, he's like, at first I thought they're being ironic, but I think I'm actually running into memes that are like, are unironically alt-right. Hmm. You know? And it's just like. Uh, you know, people like I like unironically saying, you know, maybe Hitler was right after all. Maybe oh, we need geez. this kind of nationalism, you know, and it's just like I, I got to be honest, like I, I don't think that the left are going to take over the country. I don't I don't think I think the country's too big for that. But when you talk about it doesn't take when you have that kind of mindset, it doesn't take a lot of people to scare everybody else in submission. That's what the night of the night of knives was. You know, the crystal knocked with, you know, right. and I just like that actually scares me more. The idea of a bunch of people just showing up. You, you have if to that make sense. If you have no, no, a reaction, it, yeah. it does. You, you have to, because uh, yeah, my, one of my main points here in, in the research that I'm trying to do, and I'm still in beginning stages of it to a degree yeah. is we take for granted the pull of history. We, we tend to think yes. that history is just sort of this, um, I don't know, in, invisible thing that just keeps moving like next to us, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. No, no, no. We are products of historical movements and temperaments that happen. And one of the temperaments now is that we are being lured into extreme sides. And I don't care yeah. left or right. I don't care. Right. You have right. to be careful of, of the allurement, the temptation to go to the extremes because it's there yes. on both sides. You could exactly. go into, exactly. into these sides here and something else I've been thinking about. I'll test it out with you here. Sure. I was thinking about no pressure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no, it's fine. <laughs> this is, this is truly like the <laughs> yeah, no, no, organic good, thinking yeah, yeah. here. So let's, let's see yeah. if it works. Um, I was thinking about the, the extreme sides again in general. And I thought, you know, when you're in the extremes, you feel like you're connected and everything makes sense and they're speaking for you and you think this is very different than the opposing side. Very different. But I was reading um, Chantal Mouffe's book on the, uh, the paradox of democracy and she makes this point that you need antagonism for democracy to work well. Actually, you mm. need that antagonistic element. And she said, you have, you want a pluralistic society, right? With multiple sites of power to be able to choose from and to be able to have conversations with each other. And I thought this makes sense. It does. But when you speak to the average person, the average person will tell you, 
it kind of feels like they're all the same in the end. Like there's this weird paradox of having uniquely different sides of like left and right. And yet people saying, yeah, but it, it kind of feels around election time. Like they're very much the same in the end. And that got me thinking, if you think about it, when you're, when you're locally in these groups, it feels very different from the other side. But when you pull back almost like a Google map, where you just keep hitting the scroll wheel, the two end up blending together, not because of their local beliefs, but because of the tactics they use. Yeah. That's why it feels the same to us. And it feels like at times that we don't have a pluralistic society because both are willing to use X, Y, and Z. Why? Because it works. And because it's been working yeah. for thousands of years. And so every so often people will have this emergent feeling of almost like an out of body experience where they're like, wait a second, is this any different? And that's when I would say that's your moment to get out of the extremes. Because if you get mm. out of the extreme sides, you're no longer beholden to just that viewpoint. I can take a good idea from left, from right. I don't care where a good idea comes from. I just want right. the good idea. And yeah. that gives me a tremendous amount of peace. Instead of feeling the need to defend everything that your yeah. side is doing. I, yeah. I, um, well, when we see that even with both sides being, uh, it, it, it really centers around, um, I love that. Uh, I believe the band's name is Living Color, uh, Cult of Personality. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with that song. Um, great song. You know, they, they're... Uh, they just name names and then they just say it's the cult of personality. So it's like uh, J uh, John F. Kennedy um, and Mussolini, like the cult of personality. And of course, like they're like in the 70s, which I'm sure didn't go over well. But, <laughs> right, or maybe the yes. 80s, I can't remember. You're like, yeah. it's like, um, I like, uh, uh, they're talking about like uh, Reagan and Stalin. Like it's you, you see this in our politics right now. It doesn't matter at all what the person on your side does. It's very, uh, it goes back to, I think it's Marshall McLuhan talking about, we go back to tribalism, you know? I mean, uh, Joe Biden falling asleep in a political meeting. Whatever you want to believe about Joe Biden, like that shouldn't happen, right? Like no, the president yes. of the United States shouldn't take a nap. <laughs> Definitely but not. But like, well, he's just so tired, you know? Like, And the other side's no. like, see, sleepy Joe. And it's just like, it, it becomes... It, it doesn't matter who's right. What matters is it's our man or and it's, it's their the, man. Yes. And it's the, you're speaking to the reducibility of it. That is like, okay, so now we'll talk about, you know, Joe Biden this way. Before that, we were talking about Donald Trump this way. Before that, we were talking about President Obama this way. Before that, like at a certain point, you start to realize uh, I think we were talking about this before we even started, really. But you start to realize, what's the utility of this, really? Yeah. Because this is always going to be that way. If you want to play that rhetorical game, you can do it forever. Forever. There's always going to be something negative to say about the, any human being. Always. And at the end of the day, I think, what what are we really trying to... Because the other thing that I see a lot of is... I don't know mm -hmm. about you, but... I have found myself sometimes when I'm speaking to someone 
all of a sudden in the middle of the conversation, I realized, oh, wait, this is a debate. Oh, and I'm way behind. Oh, I didn't even know. I was like, oh boy, I'm losing. <laughs> like, and I, here I am, stupid me. I'm thinking we're having a conversation. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm getting bombarded with like, and this, and what about that? And what about this? And I'm going, I don't, what do you want me to do with that? It's their observations. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. It's like, what, no, what do you want me to do facts. with it? Yeah. I, I, what's the utility at the end of the day? In some yeah. ways, you know, again, we were talking about this before. Philosophy is great to read because it should expand you, who you are, and it should in some way make you reflect on how you can be a better version of yourself. But you have to first put in the work to realize who is a better version of yourself or you have nothing yeah. to compare it to. And that's the, you have the to allurement have to live by. Absolutely. You have to have, yeah. and this is that reassurance of narrative. You're literally yeah. building the narrative of who do I want to be? What's a good yeah. person? Like I always throw that. I haven't, my students don't know this yet. They'll know it eventually, but I always at a certain point when we talk about building criteria, I'll just start asking them, you know, Billy, are you a good person? And they look at me like, oh, what? What kind of question is that? And it's all to lead them to the idea of how can you know that the other person is not a good person or that you are, or that you aren't, if you've never actually reflected on what a good person is, you have no way to know that. And so you do and the work first. Yeah. You do the work first by building up that narrative of yourself. Yeah. And then you can start to make certain adjustments. And if you, if you um, ingest information, whether it be from like a news source or philosophy or another person, then you can put that up against your criteria for a good person. And if it does not make you a better person, a better version of yourself, get rid of it. Let it go. You do not have to, despite what people say sometimes, the suffering people who just like to suffer with that, you are not beholden to all pieces of knowledge. You're not. You can't be. Yeah. Like, you, you will never be omniscient. You don't have no. the capacity. And I wouldn't want to be. And you don't have the oh, time. How miserable would that be to know everything? Because the Greeks understood way back when with, um, oh gosh, I'm going to get the name wrong. It wasn't Cassandra, I don't think, who always spoke the truth and and the curse was that no one would ever believe her that's very true that's, that's what would happen yeah, that's what would happen today the same exact thing you'd be going around saying you're going to make a huge mistake in the next 10 minutes and they will look at you like yeah shut up <laughs> like, what do you do with that how do you live <laughs> oh man being omniscient without being omnipotent it just oh. doesn't that's that <laughs> would be the worst um, yes so Something, you know, you're talking about constructing your own identity, and I agree that's uh, something that we have to do, but I think it's something, it's a new problem. It mm -hmm. really, and that I, I think is, and that's the result of postmodernism. That's why this is neo-modernism, right? Because in the 1200s, and it's really not that long ago, like as much as like, we still are feeling the effects of those times, and we don't Absolutely. realize it, you know? Like, when you look at the 1200s, you didn't ask, what does it mean to be a good person? And, and have multiple different answers. Like, I mean, it might depend on what village you were in, you know, but I mean, in, in Europe, there was a very specific answer for that. In 
Africa, there was a specific answer for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had people who had lived for generations and they passed it down and stability was so hard to come by that nobody challenged it because they wanted the stability. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know. You're right. And and someone that we both, because I've heard you mention him on, on your podcast as well, someone that we both like, Charles Taylor, he yeah. talks about this as he would say, this is the modern problem, right? Yeah. The modern yeah, problem yeah, yeah. is all of a sudden we've upped the, we've upped the science, right? We, we live longer and because of kind of technological moves, even simple technology, we've made it somewhat easier to have access to food and shelter and all this stuff. And now what are we left with? Ourselves. <laughs> now we've <laughs> got to deal. Yes. <laughs> now we've got to deal with the problem of like Hobbes and Rousseau and, and, and the enlightenment idea of the individual consciousness and the sovereignty of the individual, right? So here you are. Let's talk about your freedom. As, as a person. And, and Rousseau comes out and talks about how, you know, right from the gate, uh, what is it? Man is born free and isn't everywhere in chains. I mean, yeah, it's, I, it, it's this idea of like, congratulations, you can do anything and we'll just stand there afraid to move. I don't know which yeah. way to go now. And Taylor, of course, yeah, Taylor talks about this, that we've We've never dealt with that problem actually sufficiently yet. We still haven't from the 18th century. Oh. And, and he's right in a lot of ways. He's absolutely right that we still are trying to work through this problem of, of um, individual sovereignty, liberalism, in, in, not in the political sense, but um, in that right. sense. The, the, yes. And, and Which democracy, gets me in too. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I always use uh, like there's like three or four senses of liberal that I use <laughs> on a daily basis and it gets me in trouble all the time. I like uh, it's like, oh, uh, it's the and, and people don't even know that the other ones exist. And it's just, yeah, yeah it's it is. It's quite it's the tough. Thing. It is. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, tech side of it. And that's really fascinating to me. And this is where you mentioned, you know, uh, you have Joe Biden and you have Donald Trump. And you have Obama and everybody. And I'm just I. Curious uh, what you think about this. I do think there's a big gap between the way Obama was treated and Trump was treated. Not in a question of like right or wrong treatment. I think uh, when I saw that he was conducting himself personally on Twitter, I was like, oh, wow. And this is I've done a, a good amount of reading of Marshall McLuhan. I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, Not a lot. Is the massage. McLuhan, but yeah, a little bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't done like tons, um, but the medium is the massage. Great book. It's like a hundred pages, which is always wonderful when you get those like works yeah. of philosophy. You're like, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I accomplished something. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I was like, this is going to change everything. And really when you looked at, even there's like hard data, but I think we all just felt it. I don't think anyone denies this. Trump occupied more mental space than any American president before him. Like when you look how much he got mentioned on both sides, and that's uh, one of the things that has really, I don't think, I think it's a separate problem. I think how we're going to handle new technologies is a separate problem from this problem of self, mm -hmm. but I think it is intersecting in interesting and very possibly dangerous ways, if that makes sense. What, yeah. what, do you see that gap between what, like Obama and Trump in what terms I see, of like, 
Yeah, yeah. What I what I the way I look at it is this. I, I again I always like to do the um, from a distance view, right? Sure. Away from the local part here. And what I see is actually again a kind of similarity, which people will say, no, 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 no. But but hear me out. What I mean sure. is that both both were neo modern in the sense that both were heavily narrative driven in this sense. Ah, okay. People were very proud, very happy about President Obama coming in. And there was a, a, a wonderful way that he addressed, you know, people in speeches, you know, and that was a narrative and it was very stabilizing. What President Trump did that was interesting was he also was able to create a kind of narrative for people. And even if it was a destabilizing one at times, right? Almost like a, a like a, almost like a Loki figure. It's a nuanced approach here. I'm gonna I'm gonna step in it a little bit because it's very nuanced. What I'm trying to say, and and I may not even say it just right, but he was able to create what I'll I'll simply call ordered chaos. And, and I say that because at times he gave the impression of, of chaos, but did it in a very ordered and understandable way. There's a reason why you still have millions and millions and millions of people who voted for him because they yeah. saw a narrative there. And for them, that was stabilizing. Yeah. They, they saw him as a, as a possible um, destabilization for stability, if you'll allow me a weird well, kind of flunkyism way there. Well, and uh, maybe to put it in, honestly, like the way that I often uh, saw people talk about him, it was like he was the rebellion against the empire. Right. And that's, yeah, that's like, at it, its like, basic... It, it, is a basic story, actually. Yes, that's a good, well, and that's an interesting way, way to put whole, it. I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm coming from the outside. I'm going to, like, it was, like, he didn't, he kept things very simple. He, like, he, he set like, it up as good versus he evil. He stats. Yeah, it was he, very much good versus evil. He set it up evil. as good versus evil. And that yeah. was the narrative that he put out there. And that's what made him, on the surface, you would think he'd be more postmodern because of that way he would destabilize things, but it, it wasn't. And I think that's where, what I was struggling no, very with was to say that he, he was actually selling stability really like to, as his narrative, he was saying, this is reassurance. I'm good reassurance, believe in me versus evil. And I think yeah. that spoke to a lot of people. It, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't, I don't think that's unfair. I think he himself would, I mean, the way he, uh, that that's where the whole like lock her up chance came from all that stuff, right? Like Hillary Clinton was an evil person. Like that's definitely the way his campaign, that's the like, way that's they ran he it. Talked about and it her. worked. Yeah. yeah. It worked by yeah. selling it as good versus evil. And that's neo-modern. You don't get, I don't know if you get that. Outside of neo-modernism, I don't think he's elected president in postmodernism. He certainly could have run, but he never would have won, I don't think, because I don't believe that people would have bought into that necessarily, that narrative of good versus evil as easily. I just don't, I don't think so. I think he, I think he was very smart 
about that, really? I, the only thing I would say, um, and I don't have this fully worked out in my head. Sure. What did feel postmodern is I felt one of his biggest strengths was coming from reality TV. And I feel oh. like reality <laughs> TV is one of the most postmodern things out there. Like the, if that makes sense. And I don't have that idea fully worked out, but it like, it was so obvious that what had worked for him in, in reality TV and that made him a star was part of what made it work for him as a president. Um, well, think about this. Even, you're, you're not wrong. Actually, you're onto something here. I think that I never thought about either, which is to say, and I didn't watch a lot of, it was the apprentice, right? I didn't watch yeah, a, lot a lot of, of the of it, apprentice, yeah. but my understanding is you're right in that coming out of a postmodern medium. But what he did was he established his narrative as a, I'm willing to fire you to get the job yeah. done. He established an incredibly <laughs> yeah. like a, or maybe I should say he cemented a narrative of, you know, of and ownership. I love that you said that. Cause I, um, cause I said, you know, rebel rebellion versus the empire. It really wasn't most people I talked to who talked about him in glowing fashion, talked about him as he's a businessman. He's going right. to come into a, a corrupt and crappy business and he's going to clean it up. He's going to be the new CEO who straightens everything out. And that's definitely, so that would fit better, which I mean, that, that, that's his image to a T right. Um, but it's a really interesting, um, uh, I remember reading about his campaign. So obviously this isn't just Donald Trump. He has a whole host of strategists and everything. And what he did differently than a lot of people. And I think this goes back to your point about reassurance and how we need reassurance. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to just use this time to like, I don't want to, I'm not a huge fan of just like, I'm just going to bash Trump or I'm going to bash Biden. I just use that Biden example as like, you know, this, for me, this is, this is analytical, right? Like I'm not, exactly. I'm not here to like, I agree. Yeah, it's the like, same thing I, with me. I'm not interested again yeah. in the left and right thing. I don't care. We're just talking ideas. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, um, but the campaign manager, like he said this explicitly, uh, he's like, we're not going to apologize. And that's what really like, I mean, and you could see it. That's why he won the Republican side. Because he said things that every other politician would apologize for, and he didn't. He doubled down. In fact, uh, so I remember specifically the one that they pointed out was he, and I don't remember who it was, he said something um, that someone took as offensive. You know, I don't even remember what it was. So I don't know if it was offensive or not, right? I mean, that's a whole other discussion about, yeah. like, how does offense work, right? <laughs> but, uh, and instead of apologizing, which was the normal tactic at the time, he went to the guy's home state and he went on a really long tour doubling down on the same message he had given. Mm. And that's, I mean, when you talk about narrative reassurance, I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like no, I am what I am and you can feel comfortable. If you are with me, I'm not going to trade. Like, I mean, that's like people like, oh, he doesn't flip flop. Like, I know what I'm getting with Trump. And that's like, that's how it works. Exactly. And it goes and very well with what you're saying. You're right. And, and it's right. Because for people who really love him, there is a stability there that they appreciate in that way, which I think on the surface, again, people would probably think that he was more um, disruptive. But if you speak no, to people who love thing. him, it's they see it as stability. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and here's the interesting thing, and this is where uh, it, looking at it from the, the view out, you know, even when you look mm -hmm. at the history of philosophy, like the truth is he was stabilizing for the left, too. Yes, galvanizing <laughs> even, right? Yeah, everyone was, just, right. everyone was just like the bogeyman. I mean, if that's you're not right. like everyone was just like, he's the worst. No, he's the best. He just made it like, like the two sides were like, we're good, you're evil. We're good, you're evil. And that's just the way. And, yeah. uh, and in some ways, you could tell um, the left almost misses him. You know what I mean? Like, they don't because know. again, it's like, that, it, I mean, yeah, it's an easy it's an easy thing to talk about because it's so stable in some ways. Right. And, and it's, but we do hate Trump. <laughs> it's like, yeah, always, yeah, we hate Trump too. There's yeah, always yeah. a like, narrative. <laughs> yeah. There's always a narrative there to pull from. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. I hadn't thought about it that way, but the language between the two left and right, when uh, president Trump was, was in office, was almost story driven a lot of ways, right? And always yeah. in that back and forth kind of good versus evil way. Yeah. And that that is always engaging to the human being. We we live our yeah. lives through narrative. We need narratives. And and maybe that's why people were so engaged by it and well, maybe a little bit say. more disengaged now. Exactly. I was just about to say, like, uh, one thing about stories is it's, I mean, we like, uh, so I run a digital marketing company with my wife and it's amazing how much philosophy can help with that. You know, I got yeah. my master's in philosophy because, <laughs> um, I wanted to be unemployable, but the, uh, <laughs> without getting my doctor, right. I should have gotten my but doctor. But I wanted to know like, why I, I was thinking? unemployable. Like, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been really, but, um, you, uh, facts are really helpful, but it's stories that make people that make yeah. people get up and do stuff. And that's Absolutely. like, I mean, that's why we saw record turnout for, I think both his elections. I know for the last one, it was, it was astronomical. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I mean, people are just like, like, Oh, I am participating in something. Whereas in a lot of ways there's this disenchantment of like, I mean, I don't want to ever encourage people not to do their civic duty, but like, how much does your one vote matter? It's like, well, I mean, you're, you're a tiny like droplet of water in a big ocean. Like, aren't you glad to be able to like, I, no, I don't care. Like <laughs> I can yeah, be evaporated and, was, and I'll stay at home. <laughs> he was able to, to give people, people who voted for him felt yeah. like it was more than civic duty. If you speak to them about it, oh, they'll yeah. tell you that it was, it was a, a, uh, an existential duty almost to, to from, the, uh, from the left too. To yes. Him. And uh, yes, that's where I was going to go to in the end. I was going to say, and, and in the other side as well, it was like, a, um, again, like a transcending moment. We're transcending just what this vote means. We're voting yeah. for our souls is what was yeah. happening yeah. Oh, here. There was definitely right? that kind of talk. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, Again, that's why I, I always find it so fascinating to just look at it from a distance and just kind of keep going back and forth like a tennis match and going, huh, what's going yeah. on here? <laughs> it's like the same thing, actually. Like, you know, that kind I of thing. I feel like we might tread on the dangerous ground if we start trying to take the third point and find sacred spaces for both those groups. But I think we could just leave yes. a, that to our audience's <laughs> imaginations. No, there, you're, you're like... right. Sacred space is building sacred space. I'll just say this is 
is an intensely personal thing. Whatever yeah. it is, whatever it is, it's intensely personal. And anything that we would say to try to sway or try to, um, uh, you know, aggrandize or make make one seem more sacred than the other, people will take it as a personal attack on their soul. They'll, and they that's why. Do. Yeah. That's why it's not. I wouldn't even say that people take the the easy way out when you don't do it, when you don't talk about it. I actually think that it's it's just not even that it's not worth it. I don't think there's there's much to say about it, to mm. be honest with you. It's not about a, avoiding it. It's that if I try to tell you what my sacred spaces are, how does that serve you? And how yeah. does that serve me? They're, they're mine for a reason. And I open them up to maybe my wife. And I open them up to, you know, uh, my God and, and family, but it's not something necessarily that we do share easily. And I'm not even so sure yeah. that we should. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it gets really, oh man, it's so clear. Like even the almost, I don't know if you saw any of the YouTube videos about the fights over Trump signs. No, or the fights over the fights over political signs, like people like setting booby traps because their Trump signs kept getting taken out of their yards. You know what really? I mean? When you talk about literal, oh, no. oh yeah, oh yeah, right. I mean, like both sides here. You're like, okay, one, don't remove political signs from people's yards. Also, like, I, it's a political sign. Can we not inflict bodily harm over this? Like, yeah. I, anyways, that's a yeah. I mean, and that's something I do want to get because I know this is important to you. I want to get back around to. Um, but, uh, the idea of like maybe dialoguing instead of, <laughs> yes, Anyways, how important like, that is. But, no, it is. You're right. It's very important like, that we get back to that. But there's a, but that sacred space was very clear. And that like one of the clearest things about sacred sp space is always some kind of icon, some kind of marker, right? Like that's how you denote a sacred space. And that was very evident that's evident in the trump flags um it's very like i mean i saw way more political signs than i ever had right yeah. everyone was like declaring their uh, allegiance um literally um and i obviously don't condone this uh <laughs> i don't condone any of what i'm talking about here but like someone literally said i uh, had a sign f trump but spelled out in like 20 foot banner on oh, the front boy. of their house and like this is like a suburban place like lots of kids around and like people are like frustrated and like, like but it's just like it's such an intense like it was such an intense thing it was such a sacred thing like but it, you like, know when what you that say is the soul too. of the nation exactly and that's also what i was talking about earlier that that's a cry out for i am somewhat i'm nervous about the validity of my own narrative and so I'm going to project out and see if anyone else will join me. Because if you are, if you are secure in who you are in your narrative, right? There's, there comes a certain point when you don't need to do that. You just stand there and you go, <laughs> I have my allegiance to, you know, this, this party or that party or whatever. And I can yeah. explain to you why. And here's why and yeah. that, all of that. That's fine. But when you have to make a show of it, you're degrading the value of it even a little bit. You really are. And you're, you're mocking without knowing it too, not just the process, but you're, you're mocking 
in a way your own narrative. Yeah. It's really odd. Yeah, you're becoming a caricature of yourself. Yeah. And and yeah, both sides can do this. Modern about that, yeah. Yes, and, and, and there are remnants. Unsacred. Yeah. There are remnants of postmodernism that will always be with us. Stand-up comedy comes out of postmodernism, yeah. and it will always yeah. be what it is. And it will mm -hmm. always say to you when you enter the theater, you give up your sacred space. Yeah, because I'm going to well, tread on it. If you're going to live, and I think most people live compartmentalized without, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just that importance of being, some people give up their sacred space. Some people are secure in their safe, sacred spaces and some people are insecure about their sacred spaces and project it on others. So, you know, talking as a Christian to another Christian, like this is something that, I mean, I've had the probably, um, some of the worst clients I've ever had are the ones who talk the most about God. Who said, well, yeah, God bless that's... you. Um, it's like, oh, are we both Christians? And it just <laughs> becomes this like, and you're like, uh, I, 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 yeah, and I'm excited about it. But this is, that was a weird moment to insert that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. why? And then later on, it's like, well, we were, I thought we were, you know, you were going to like help me out here. And I'm like, I don't really know you, you know, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> like um, and so, I, you know. But you know, mm, you know what it is really too, is if we, if we talked long enough, a very, yeah. uh, invariably we will get to a point where we will disagree on something having yeah. to do with our religion and how we practice yeah. it. And I think the important part there is to one, yeah. know that up front and say yeah. that I have, I have my way that leads me to God. You have your way where we need to mm -hmm. meet are on the fundamentals of, of godliness in a sense, you know, like we, we have to, we do need to find spaces where we can meet on that level, but to, 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 uh, how do I say this? That's to why we assume, connected. To, to assume that your sacred space is the same as mine is not simply just foolish. It's problematic. It, it's, yeah. it's inviting tension where you should have already known it was going to be there. So then my question would be, why'd you do it? You know what I mean? Like well, that, it's, that's it's where I would how, be. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how people um, are just that socially unconscious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's like, I just thought you're like, it literally happens. like you just don't understand how this works. And like, yeah. you see, like, um, and, you know, it's interesting. Uh, well, I have just, I want to say that's why we connected. Um, I mean, I'm, so, uh, I go to a Presbyterian church, uh, you're Catholic. We mm -hmm. have very obvious historical differences. I'm, yes. I can already tell you some of them. Like, that's yes. like, I think the audience know. even knows those different, yeah, I think everybody right. knows those differences <laughs> by now. Right, right. Yes, so exactly. Like, that, but it's, and that's, you know, um, but we can still, and this is what I, this is why we connected. This is why I've been really excited about this episode. I mean, yours is on, is called neutral grounds podcast. Mm -hmm. My, uh, uh, we run under C candid goat productions. We have two podcasts. One is weary dads. Um, and then one is chasing Leviathan and it's creating common ground for the common good. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, we have that, like, okay. Um, I, I don't think legislating, uh, Christianity has worked in the past. Not a big fan of the Hundred Years' War. 
Mm-mm. So we need to find a way to work together. And, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of brings us back to, uh, to the idea of dialogue. And, uh, so trying to give an example of like, um, you know, and not to, I hate it when I make myself the hero of my own story. So I apologize, but this is like, you have to be a great example. You have (laughs) to be, be, that's the thing (laughs) is that because that, that means that you believe that there is something worth fighting for in life. Yeah. Well, that's what that means. I want to talk about being secure in my own, like, it's okay that, that, you know, you're, you hold different things than I do. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you're welcome. What a, what a gift for me. Like, you know, like it's always funny when people say that, like, it's like, it's like, yeah, they don't need your approval. But, uh, as an example, um, I was, I have a, an episode with a, uh, and he didn't, he didn't say on the podcast. And I'm almost a little sad. Um, uh, though my mom probably would have had a heart attack. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had, uh, he loves Nietzsche, had a guy on, mm-hmm. he's like full blown, uh, Nietzsche and hates postmodernism because sure. he's, he's like, like super anti-nihilistic. We should be making our own meaning evolution, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that I was a devout Christian cause he was like talking and he was like, well, you know how Christians think. And I'm like, well, it'd be disingenuous for me to be like, be like, yeah, those Christians. Right. And, um, so we started talking about Christ a little bit and he's like, yeah, Jesus was kind of an a-hole. I mean, he didn't, he just full out said the whole word. And I was like, okay. And you know, he's like, I mean, throwing the, the tables and everything. And I was just like, I could be offended, but I'm right. like, obviously like coming from his perspective, like if Jesus wasn't the son of God, that's probably a fair, like if some guy just came in and started trashing your, your, your workplace, the, the marketplace, that would be an appropriate yeah. thing to say. And it's like, I, and I'm like, I, it's fine. Cause he doesn't determine my sacred space. He doesn't determine. And that's exactly that is the price we pay. That's the price we pay for not legislating one particular narrative. And Absolutely. That, there's a, there is a price like you will run into that, but mm-hmm. I can't get upset about that because I'd much rather have that than, um, you know, some guy in Geneva having a different view of the Trinity and getting burned at the stake. Like, yes. I can't, can you imagine that in America? Like, <laughs> yeah, like it's no, just you're like right. that, the whole point of America was to escape that. Um, and I, I think that brings us back around and this is, um, we, we talked a little bit about how, uh, both sides, you know, I have fears about reactionary side, whichever side, I don't want extremes from either side taking over the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that we do need to reclaim, and I I don't really see it in these three, and that's where I'm interested to see your thoughts on this. And obviously it's you're you're trying to create dialogue um, that as we, as we think about, there does seem to be on both sides an unwillingness to talk. Mm -hmm. One, is there a way, uh, why is that a bad thing? I mean, I think that's kind of obvious, but I, I guess let, let me answer that. Cause I think it's really easy. Like when you <laughs> say to someone, you can't like, I'm not even going to listen to you when you absolutely shut down dialogue, then you leave the other person, no recourse, but to leave or to resort to violence. Yeah. And that's really, and so uh, obviously it's kind of what you're trying to create in some ways with your podcast. Do you see any long-term strategies, any ways that this might play out where dialogue might happen? Maybe it's going to happen naturally, or do you think that's something we need to focus on and how can we focus on it? I think you hit upon an interesting word earlier, which is compartmentalization. 
Mm. So for, for example, if you can have that, your, your sacred space and open it up whenever you need it, uh, you know, to revitalize yourself maybe, or recenter yourself on something that is serious and that you can actually connect with. And then at the same time, go have dinner with someone who thinks something totally, uh, totally separate from you. Maybe even it completely violates your narrative and your sacred space and, and all of that stuff. But at the end of that dinner, look at each other and smile and just kind of say, hey, that, you know, that was really interesting. You know, let, let's do it again. Yeah. Because for some people, I think they would see that as problematic. Like, how could you do that when yeah. they clearly let's let's use the harshest language we can. They clearly hate everything about you, everything that you are. And, and to that, I would simply say, I'm not meeting these people to, um, for the reason of, of trying to find ways to disconnect with them. I'm going in to find connections. And to me, that's, that's very meaningful. Like I, I can sit down and have a conversation with anybody really. And that's, I mean, you know, to, to bring the, the Christianity into it again, I mean, who was Jesus having you know, supper with, I mean, he, and, and having over, he wasn't having it with the people who believed him and, and necessarily he had it with the people who needed him most. And he had it with the people that others said, how could you have, how could you be seen with that person? And in some ways I kind of feel like, even if you don't believe in that, the idea of go out and just meet people on a human level, because we've, you can, that's the, the potential downfall of all of this in neo-modernism mm. is that you think we're separate now. Oh mm. boy, let me tell you something. This could get a lot worse. And here's how it, it will get worse if it does. We yeah. all create our own narrative. We yep. no longer have even connections with family. That's the next mm. step where we start saying, I have zero connection with my father or my, my sister or whatever. And oh, we already see some of that. Like, well, yeah, you always see over, I, I mean, over the politi political exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you start to develop your own narrative so much that you no longer believe in any connection to any other human element. And so what do we have? We have just a bunch of individuals who can no longer be in the same room with each other because the mere presence of another human being is a violation of your narrative. And mm -hmm. we're not there we're not there yet. We're not, despite even no, if we no, see no. things, but it can get there. Yeah. It really can. And so yes. the more that we can meet each other on just human basic levels, hey, do you want to be a good person? Me too. Do you fail at it sometimes? Me too. Let's talk about, are... about how we work together. It sounds corny, but the corniest things are the, are the things that are oftentimes the most true. Yeah, and even what are the, even if what we say, what it means to be a good person differs, yeah. where does it, there, there's always going to be somewhere where it agrees. Oh, okay. We yes. can at least agree on these things, right? These things are things that we can agree on and move forward. And I don't think people realize how precious what we have here is. Yeah. You know, it was interesting to see some reflection from both the left and the right after what happened in Afghanistan. And of course there was the recriminations and the political narratives about it. But some people were like, okay, just to be clear, Af uh, Afghani mothers 
were passing their children to go I to know. our country because our country is better than where it, where it is right there because they are allowed, we are allowed to talk about things. And so we need to guard this. We need to guard this ability to be together and be different because I mean, poof. I mean, that's, that's scary stuff. That picture alone, these pictures of people, you, 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 that's where uh, you, you do need a check of yourself a little yeah. bit, because if you're not at least at some point focusing on the suffering there in that mm. moment of these mm. people so desperate that they are taking a true life or death chance. And if your heart doesn't in some way move at how hard they were trying to work, then you're probably too far into the extremes. You really are. Because then that extreme narrative is the thing that's actually running your life. If that's what matters to you is how this affects your narrative instead of like, oh, seeing them as a human being who need like. It's horrible to see that. It's horrible. And, and people yeah. talking about it as a passing thing, as a passing um, paragraph in a narrative, I can't do that. I, I'll be honest with you. My initial reaction was immediately to think about, we're going to have to do our part to make sure that anyone who was involved in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars know that it wasn't meaningless. It wasn't. Yeah. And on top of that, something that we learn in modernism, right? Because neo-modernism comes out of modernism. And modernism, you have this shift of the epic hero, of mm. being a hero on battle, to the hero in the home. Yeah. And so one oh, thing that I want, That's not I want I to work on. Go. Yes. Sorry, and here's ahead. why. Okay. No, 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 please. <laughs> let, let me say this because it might help someone. Yeah. In, in... The ancient text in ancient Greece, right? Homer's text, you have the epic, the Iliad, and you have the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. In the Iliad, of course, Achilles is, everyone is all about glory. And glory in the ancient Greek sense was a sustainable narrative that would give the hero immortality through right. story. And that's what they wanted. And of course, Achilles gets immortality. We talk about his narrative. Okay. By accepting his death. Exactly. And then you get to the Odyssey and the Odyssey is all about Odysseus trying to get back home from the war. Mm. And there's nothing that's more important throughout that text that than him getting home. Yeah. And it becomes this, the, the, the height of actually, let me say this because this is, this will get to the, the point even better. Odysseus at one point goes into the underworld and he meets Achilles yeah. And Achilles wants nothing to do with hearing Odysseus tell stories of how awesome Achilles was in battle. You know what Achilles says to him? He says something like, don't talk to me, light of counsels, about my great feats. Tell me about my son. Yeah. And so the glory, the sight of heroism is moved from the battlefield to the home and when mm-hmm. Odysseus tells Achilles all the wonderful things that, that Achilles' son did, he just walks away, Achilles, but he walks away proud. Yeah. And that happens again after World War I, when you really, you're entering into modernism mm. and the hero shifts 
So you have a, a, a piece like Ulysses written by James Joyce, mm-hmm. where the hero, it's, it's based on the Odyssey. And right. the hero is this character, Leopold Bloom, and there's nothing epic about him at all. Nothing. Except for one thing. He loves his wife. Even though she cheats on him, she, he's faithful to her. And he's a father figure to the young man, Stephen Daedalus. And when we reach, when we, we, we hit a chapter called, uh, titled Eumaeus, we, mm-hmm. we run into this sailor named D.B. Murphy. And D.B. Murphy is this really braggadocious, big, epic hero. And he's telling this story and he mentions he has a wife waiting for him for seven years. He hasn't seen because he's been out at sea adventuring like the epic hero. And then he mentions also that he has a son. And as he's telling this story, the people in the room ask him, how old is your son? And he just kind of pauses and he goes, my son? And he gets confused. In that moment, Joyce is trying to show us who's the real hero in the room. It's not D.B. Murphy, the sailor who's doing all this adventuring. It's Leopold Bloom who's sitting with the young man and just listening to him. We need to shift to make that shift again after war to tell people, all anybody who was involved in this, come back home, relocate your understanding of heroism to the home, to civilization, to us. And we need to be optimistic with them about that and praise them for it. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And it's just uh, one super helpful and practical. Uh, the utility is obvious there, right? Like, um, and it's something that we don't teach young men enough, at least, uh, uh, especially in movies, you know, I mean, I, I grew up watching John Wayne with my dad and fortunately my dad was a strong father figure, but I mean, John Wayne is very rarely a good father figure, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you look at like the Cowboys is like the closest you get, right? The yeah. Cowboys. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Actually, it's yeah. a good example, but like not most of them aren't like that. In fact, that no. one was kind of an interesting one. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of uh, big Jake. Um, yeah. my grandpa absolutely <laughs> loves those. I pretty sure he wa- he's watched big Jake like a hundred times, but, um, and he's a terrible father, right? And, but he's tough. And, uh, you know, I think some of that was World War II, right? You still have that, that washover from World War II and the danger with what we're talking about, neo-modernism, and I'm just working through what you've said here, is that in our search for reassurance and our search for heroes, we miss the need for heroes in the home. Yes. It's a natural, history tells us it's a natural thing to move or to try to move that side of heroism to the domestic. And this is, this has nothing to do with, with, uh, this is open to men, women, anybody that we relocate heroism to society and we give them a reason to believe there are battles to be fought in your living room and that that has meaning, right? Because what you worry about is, and people already are saying it, you know, the, that this will, was, was this meaningless, the wars. And that's what leads to this kind of, I mean, we could lose generations because of this. We saw that this. with World War One. 
That they're they're called the lost generation, right? Vietnam. I mean, you have the rise yeah. of the biker gangs. You have. I mean, it, this is a very real thing, and mm-hmm. it's not. It's something that is that we're all responsible for. Yeah, we really are. And I'm not. Again, this. It's funny to me. People. I hate the one thing I hate more than anything is I hate cynicism. I hate cynicism with a passion. Because either you believe that the human being has value and merit, or I don't know what you're doing here then. I really don't. Like, I, I, I couldn't imagine living my entire life cynically. I couldn't do it. I mean, with at least some, you got to have something to connect to every, every day. You have to. Or you end up like a shade in the underworld, just kind of it's walking a, around. And, it's and, a projection and eventually, of self-hatred. I mean, it really is. And... And that's such a, a horrible, sad place to be. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, thank you so much. I think if you could leave us, um, I should have just not talked. I just wanted to process what you were saying. <laughs> oh, it's such a good place to end the podcast. But I don't know if um, if, uh, if there's one thing you wanted um, our audience today to take away from this discussion, what would it be? What I would say is this, look, what, what I try to tell, what I try to tell my students is how you deal with knowledge because how we deal with not, we get so much knowledge today. It's just so overwhelming. What you have to do is this, take in what you've heard. Don't react. Let it sit there for a minute. Give it your own language so that you can best process what it means for yourself and then go out into the world and just watch how it manifests itself. Really, just look around and just see, okay, that's where I see someone trying to, I think, defend their sacred space. And then after you see it, go back into your own head and reflect on, okay, so what does it mean? And that's when you start to develop a true sense of yourself there. You start to say, you know what? I think I know why that person seemed so upset with me and it had nothing to do with me. They were felt like they were under attack, like their sacred space was under attack. And the moment that you do that is the moment you start to realize, you know what? I don't hate that person. I really don't. I actually just kind of understand. And you go, all right. And so you don't walk around feeling hated and you don't walk around hating others and and there's just not enough time for that anyway there's too much good that needs to be done we Mm. don't have time for that and so what i would say is if you do walk around build your narrative it's okay to be the hero but postmodern postmodernism would say sometimes you also need to move yourself to the side And take a look and see how your heroism is impacting other people in your narrative. The people you love, the people you care about, your strangers. That's the value of postmodernism. Then you bring it back to yourself if you need to, when you need to continually keep building. I would say try to transcend. Try to transcend what what you think you are and become continually work on becoming something better. And then I would say it's okay to build your sacred space. And have that as a refreshing place where you can renew yourself when the rest of the world seems sometimes to just be mocking you in some way. It's okay to do that. 
And I guess that's what I would say. Well, that's quite a bit to say. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, it's uh, inspiring. Um, it's it's refreshing itself um, to to hear someone who is willing to not naively, but after having worked through things, continue in to build something. Hmm. And yeah. uh, that's really, really encouraging. So thank you so much. It was such a joy to have you on. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. It was wonderful. I had a blast. Awesome.